Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So here we are in week three now of our Romans series. And so quick recap, over the last two weeks, we've gone through Romans chapter one, all the way through Romans 3.20. And here's what we've established over the last three weeks. Are you ready? Or last two weeks, ready for this? We are all sinners. No one is righteous, no, not one. That's, that is kind of what we have come up with, that every single one of us is, in fact, a sinner, which is, is encouraging to know that if we're all sinners, then we're all in this together, right? That, that we have one another to lean on, and we have this, this, this kind of group of saying, hey, none of us are good. Every single one of us. So this has been important in establishing the fact that, that sin is a problem. And so Paul spends the first portion of his letter to the Romans establishing the fact that Jew and Gentile alike are, in fact, sinners, even, you know, and the Jews kind of have this, this, this arrogance, so to speak about them a little bit of, well, I am a Jew. I am therefore more righteous because I have the law. And Paul would then argue and say, actually, uh, because of your judgmental spirit and your heart towards others doing the same sins you do, you're actually probably more guilty because of the law. So, so the law in turn, he says, reveals to us our unrighteousness. The law allows us to see all of our faults and all of our shortcomings and everything that's wrong within us. And so, in the end, he says, everyone is unrighteous. You know, no one is righteous. No, not one. He says, there's not a single person in this earth, on this planet, that is, in fact, righteous. And he tells us in, in Romans 1 that, that, that humanity had become depraved. And, and, and their mind was, was wicked and they were full of evil. They had desecrated even uh, the, the gift of, of sex that was given to us and defiled that. And then they were gossipers and they were, and he goes down this list of sins and we see and we look at and realize that, that all of these things are, are rooted back in the law in the Old Testament. And then we see how in all of this, humanity is sinful. There is a sin problem. There's a sin problem. It says uh, in, in, in chapter one, he says, you know, they, they continue to do these things and then they approve of those who do them as well. So they go, wow, not only are they doing these sins, not only are they living in this way, but they are approving of the way that others are living. They're like, this, this is great. What you're doing is so good. I mean, it's this approval, right? And so, and so Paul is establishing the, the severity of the sinfulness of humanity. And so we see it and it leads us to where we are and to where we left off last week. And so today we're going to be in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of Romans chapter 4. And, and we will walk through this now. It won't be the most fully exegetical message, but we will hit the main points and thoughts of different portions throughout this text because otherwise it is a whole lot of scripture to walk through verse by verse by verse. I was challenged to do so nonetheless so if I feel the need, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Maybe. I'm just kidding. So let's jump in this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them. Real quick, as before we get started, if you have not been here to receive a Romans journal and you'd like to walk with us, we've been doing a weekly Bible study through this. Uh, if you don't have a Romans journal and you would like one, these are a free gift to you to say, you know, hey, we want to help you and encourage you to read the Bible on a daily basis to get into the word. Uh, if, if you don't have one, if you would just slip your hand up and you would like one, uh, our, our hosts are ready to deliver that to you. So if you just slip your hand up at any moment, uh, we have those available for you so that you can also also have in there, there's a place for your Sunday morning notes uh, that'll have the passage of scripture that we're in for that day. And then there's also a spot for Monday through Saturday as well in those same portions of scripture so that you can read and, and, and study along with us. And so uh, we encourage you to do so. There is some incredible stats and statistics that go along with being in the word that we won't get into today. Uh, but let me just tell you this, the word of God changes you. Uh, and it's necessary and it's needed. And so we say this often, we don't read the word of God like it's a newspaper to just gain facts and information, but we allow the word of God to read us as well so that we do learn what's happening, but then we also allow it to read us and 
cause the spirit to almost awaken us to what's wrong in us and what needs to be changed in the spirit. The word of God is alive and active. And so anyways, that's a be in the word. That's, that's my encouragement this morning with that. So we're starting in Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. Now this is an incredibly awesome portion of scripture that, that I wanna read. And it says this, but now apart from the law, Righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And then verse 23, which is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then 24, which often gets left off, which is so powerful. And it says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord, and we thank you, God, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the, for the leading of the Spirit to lead Paul to write the book of Romans. Lord, as he wrote this letter and, and, and had it prepared to go to the church in Rome, Lord, I, I pray, God, that, that in the same way we receive what Paul was trying to communicate to the church there. And we ask, God, that you allow it to wash over us, to change us, and to form us into the image of Christ. And we thank you for it. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. So the first thing today we want to talk about is righteousness through faith. First of all, isn't it exciting and encouraging that we get to talk about grace uh, for, a, for a morning? This is good because we have talked about how terrible we are for the last few weeks. So it's like, congratulations, uh, we're all failures and there is no hope. But now finally, it's like, no, there is hope. There is, uh, we, we get to talk about the grace and, and, and the justification. So we're gonna have a lot of fun today, uh, a lot of good doctrine and some good theology that we get to walk through as we look through the verses that we're gonna go through today. So the first thing is this, uh, is that Paul's needing to establish this point that we're all unrighteous. He did that. And it is made evident through the law or through the, our own consciousness. So he shifts his thinking now to explain how righteousness is obtained. And he starts with the very, this very two little words, and he says, but now. And that's profound. That statement is powerful for, for the simple fact that had Paul just left it at the simple fact that we are all unrighteous and that we are all sinners and that there is no hope, right? And essentially saying, sorry, it's over. Go home and just wait for the apocalypse and for your eternal damnation, right? That would be how it was left off. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't stop there. He says, but now. And it shows that there's a way to receive this righteousness that we need. The righteousness of God has been made known. Even the law and the prophets testify to God's righteousness. What he's saying is that in the Old Testament, he's speaking then to his Jewish audience in this particular moment saying, look, even the law and the prophets testify to the fact that there is righteousness through the Lord and that it can be found and obtained by faith. And so it's kind of this, again, still working against the old way of thinking through, through the Jewish law and still working through the old way of thinking of obtaining and doing good and working towards this salvation. And he's saying, no, 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 even the law and the prophets testify to what I'm teaching you. So understand, he said, so today we'll get to walk through some Old Testament scriptures with this and it'll be just a really, really good thing in helping us to grasp a full view and understanding of this. He says, the righteousness of God has been made known. It's a righteousness that we are in desperate need of. In 20, verse 22, Paul reveals the righteousness is given to all who believe in Jesus. And this is crucial in understanding uh, that, that it comes through Jesus and our faith in Jesus. So we have to recognize and establish a simple fact that, that I believe that most of us probably hold dear to our hearts. And that is this, Jesus Christ is the son of man and the son of God. He is, in fact, the embodiment of the Lord on earth. So he is fully God and fully man. He walked on this earth and he gave his life up for you and I. 
meaning that his physical body was nailed to the cross, that his blood was shed, and it was not just a human mortal that was hanging on the cross, but he was fully God and fully man embodied within the same person. That is crucial, crucial, crucial in our understanding of the gospel. Because it's not about simply that any figure that the, the Lord said, okay, I'm going to indwell in this person and just says, boom, now this is now Jesus. This is, he is now the Messiah. But understanding that Jesus and the Messiah were synonymous, they were one in the same. There's no separating or, or placing that understanding on any other figure or person. Jesus was it. And Paul was specific and explicit in stating that Jesus is the place to put your faith. He said, if you're going to receive the righteousness of God, it is through faith in Jesus alone. It is only in Christ. It is not through any other avenue, any other direction or path. It only comes through Jesus. Only through Jesus. And then he says, there's no difference in humanity. There's no difference between you and I, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Understand that in the realm of our flesh and humanity, there are no social classes. There are no differences from one or the other. And the fact of the matter is we are all sinful. And so he says it again. He's, he's, he's making sure that it is understood. For all have sinned and fallen short. And they all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. I think we have, we've established it. We spent two weeks there. I think we can move on. Here's what happens. Though. Oftentimes that verse gets quoted and it stops as if there's a period in the statement. And there's not. It doesn't say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, period. There's a comma. And too many times, I think that the Christian world gets viewed as, as seeing everybody through the lens of a period at the end of the statement. And that's, it shouldn't be our reality, right? It should be understood that there is a comma because it goes beyond that and doesn't, it doesn't linger and just stop. And like, it doesn't, it's not a paragraph break. It's not a new thought, but it continues in that same thought. And he says, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So you're telling me this sinful person now has a way to be made right. That now through faith in Jesus, I'm freely justified by his grace. What does that mean? What does that mean? So the word here that is used is, uh, is a Greek word, and it is dikaioi, and it means to equip, to make righteous. It's a legal term. So it's the word for justified. It's a legal term that would have been used in the courts of the day is to say, essentially, the charges have been dropped. That's a pretty cool thought when you put it in those terms, but to say, to acquit, to be made righteous. We're justified. I heard it this way when I was in high school and my youth pastor would always say, justified is just as if I'd never sinned. It's just an easy way to remember that. So that through faith in Jesus, I am freely justified by the grace that comes from the Lord by simply placing my faith in him. It almost doesn't seem fair. It almost seems like it's too good of a deal. And in our world, we, we were so used to like, if, it's, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is. But the reality is this is that one exception to the rule when you go, I'm a sinner. I deserve the wrath of God, as, they explain, as, as Paul wrote in one and two. That, that we're, in, in one, he says, you know, they've, they've opened themselves to the wrath of God by their, their unrighteousness. And in two, he says, do you not know that you're judging and, and you're continuing to do the same sins? Do you, do you not know that you're storing up the wrath for yourself? I mean, that's a scary thought. And then he continues and he says, but now we're freely justified by grace simply by putting our faith in Jesus because of the work that he did on the cross. That's pretty remarkable. And it doesn't seem 
right for us, but it's the love of Jesus that compelled him to do so. Through our faith in Jesus, we're acquitted of all unrighteousness and we receive the righteousness of God. That's grace. That's grace. So look at verse 25 for just a moment. Um, You won't hear me say this very often, so take this when I, when I say this. Um, but the word atonement in verse 25 is, is only a good translation. And you know, I'm a big proponent of the NIV, so you know that. But I, I feel like it's almost lacking from the actual translation. King James <laughs> does a good job here. Uh, so I'm not against King James, hear me. I'm just, I'm not. But there's something I feel that's lacking within this translation in in the NIV. And it says that it uses the word atonement, which atonement is great. It is a wonderful, it's a wonderful use of a word in this moment because it refers to and it speaks to the blood that was shed. Because in the Old Testament, there had to be uh, atonement, right? So there had to be blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so there would be this sacrifice that was brought as a sin offering to the Lord, right? And so the, the, the lamb had to be killed and the blood had to be spilled. And so we see that with Jesus on the cross. He is there as our atonement. His blood had to be shed and his life had to be given as the sin offering. But there's something lacking in this translation that I think that the King James actually gets right because they use the word propitiation. And propitiation is profound and it's necessary. Oftentimes the reason why you don't find it in a lot of modern translations is because the word propitiation is not used today. Uh, if you use the word propitiation, you are in a very small percentage of the, of, of the population, right? And, and so uh, I would find myself not in that small percentage. You don't hear me walking around just throwing out the term propitiation. But what does propitiation mean? It's profound and it's necessary. And here's why it's so important. Because the word means the removal of wrath. So to remove it, it almost almost diminishes all of the other things that Paul had said prior to this, right? Because he has told us that, that we are opening ourselves to the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. And so through our unrighteousness, we are deserving of his wrath and whatever that may be. So he says, but through Jesus and his work on the cross, he is the propitiation through the shedding of his blood. So really, the best way to translate that and to understand that would be that he is our propitiation and our atonement. He is the removal of wrath and the shedding of the blood. It's a, and that's, I mean, that's significant. We have to know that. So then in verse 26, this goes back to so many things that I talk about all the time and it refers back to why did he do this? And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So again, why is this to demonstrate his righteousness? Why? So he receives the glory. And we're gonna get more into that in a moment. We're gonna talk about how we can't boast in this, but, but it's all about glorifying the name of the Father. He loves us passionately, deeply, and madly. And that's why he sent Jesus for us because if he didn't love us, there would have been no way of atonement or propitiation for our sins. But the reality is it's all for his name's sake so that he receives the glory and he receives the honor so that his righteousness is demonstrated for us that we're justified through Jesus. You can't boast. So let's pick up in verse 27 through 31. Let's read this. It says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what? Because of what law? He said, the law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Notice the exclamation. He's like, no, hear me, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So righteousness through faith, not works. That's our second point. Righteousness through faith, not works. 
So we find that paradox again of the Jewish law and the shift in thinking that we're only justified by faith, not by the law, not by what we do. So, so Paul then resorts to one, his favorite, one of his favorite things to do is ask rhetorical questions. I mean, Paul asks them all the time. He's like, he's like I'm going to answer it, so just keep listening. So I'm going to ask a question but you keep your mouth shut. That's how Paul operates. And so I feel like when he was preaching, there's probably hands going up and he's like, I'm going to answer it. You can put your hand down. I feel like he's pretty direct like that. So Paul's like, that's cute. I, I have the answer. Uh, I read this in, in a commentary referring to this and it says, Christ saving death has removed from mankind any possibility of boasting. If the cross has done all that is needed, if God has revealed in the Old Testament that human effort is futile, there is no place for man's effort and accordingly for man's extolling of his own effort. It's done through Jesus so that his name would be glorified and not our own. So that the Jews, and we mentioned this briefly, but the Jews had this level of religious pride because after all, they had received the law after all, they had been God's chosen people. They were the ones led out of Egypt, watched the Red Sea part, and that they had the Ark of the Covenant then and the Ten Commandments. They had all of this, right? And so there's this sense of a religious pride, like we are the Jews, we are God's chosen people, and therefore we are better than, right? And it's kind of this, this mindset and mentality. And Paul is coming in and trying to break that down and say, listen, no, no, no. It's not through the law that you're saved. Rather, it's your faith that is required of you to receive the righteousness of God, to, to walk in this now salvation that we have. He says, so if you're going to receive this, you have to understand that it has nothing to do and no bearing on what you do other than putting your faith in Christ. So he's trying to tear that down because the understanding that, that if, if it's about you and you can boast in it and you can stand proud of what you have accomplished, it diminishes to nothing the work of the cross. Because if it's you, then what was the point and the purpose of death on the cross in the first place? So he's saying, no, remove your pride. Remove the, any thought that you have accomplished any of this because it's not through your works or your doing. You're not saved by the law. Rather, it's the law that requires faith. And it makes me think of the old hymn. And he says, when I survey the wondrous cross and pour contempt on all my pride. So when we, when we recognize that our salvation is through our faith in Jesus and not by anything we've done to earn it, all of a sudden, any pride towards our salvation causes contempt within us to say, and, and push that down, to, to, to beat it down and say, I'm, I'm angry at my pride. How dare I think that I am good enough? How dare I think that I've earned this? And this is what Paul's trying to get at. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's through the work of the cross, through faith in Jesus, so that no one can boast so remove your thought that you've earned something or that you are good enough because it's not that you are. It's just that his grace is sufficient. This begins to be, this, this almost becomes uh, a, a frustration in, in religion across the board, no matter what religion it is. Because there's so much emphasis outside of Christianity placed on your earning of salvation or your earning of your reward and your, your earning. So it begins to swell up this, a bit of a pride within the person saying, I have done this, 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 and this. And there becomes this spiritual arrogance. And within our faith, it's like, no, you, you need to be rid of that because there is nothing you can do to earn more salvation. And I've said this before. It's like, uh, there's, there's no, like, kind of saved. Like, how are they? Well, I think they're kind of saved. And I'm like, well, uh, it's one or the other. So I don't, there's not this, either they are or they aren't. Do they, do they love Jesus or do, you know, or do they not? Right? Like, where are, is there faith here or is it not? You know, it's just kind of this understanding because it's nothing that we do that we can earn it or better place ourselves within the seating of salvation. Understand, we're, we're talking salvation here. 
So it's not about us. It's about the grace of the Lord. So verse 30, Paul brings a great theological statement into the argument that I feel we need to discuss for just a moment. He says, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. And it's the understanding in in the statement that there is only one God. There's no other God. And so any other God is an affront to the one true God. Any other God would be a made up or created idea or entity that apart from the one true God, nothing else is comparable because nothing else is from the one true God. It's not a, he just, this isn't a question. If you read it, he, he's not asking a question. He isn't saying, uh, who will justify the circumcised? No, he's saying, there's only one God who will justify or the, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So he's not asking a question. He's not opening. This isn't one of his rhetorical questions that he's, he's trying to cause a rebuttal or, no, no, or response. No, this is simply him making a statement. There is only one God. And that there's only one way to the righteousness of that God, and it is through faith in Jesus. And for some people, this is off-putting. And for some, this, this gets viewed as, as a harsh or judgmental stance or statement by the Christian faith. Because they're saying, well, then what about all these other religions? And what about all these other thoughts? Is there, are they not valid? Are they not able to then lead? Some, and the reality is, no, they're not. And, and the only truth is in Jesus. And I, I don't say that out of an attitude of pride or arrogance in our faith. I say that from a position of love, saying that should motivate us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to share the gospel with all of those around us, to be light into the dark places, and to go and take the name of Jesus to every corner of this planet and say the name of Jesus needs to be lifted high and magnified, and it's through Christ that we receive salvation because apart from that, we are walking in our own unrighteousness, and until we receive Christ, until we put our faith there, we don't take on the righteousness of God. So Paul makes that statement to say, there's only one God that's going to be doing all of this. And until you put your faith in him, your, your sin is your truth. But when you put on the righteousness of God and you step into faith, all of a sudden that becomes your truth. Paul speaks more about sin in the New Testament than anybody else. So Paul talks about sin. And so it's to Paul, sin is an issue. Sin is a problem. And he's like, this isn't good. Uh, we need to not, right? It's kind of this thing he's saying. He says, so, but in this part, we're hearing a lot about you can't earn, you can't earn, you can't do enough good. You're, just not, you're never gonna be made righteous through your doing. But at the same time, they ask him, so, so what does this mean? Should we then do away with the law? Should we be rid of it? And he says, not at all. In fact, we should uphold it. And now the word law that he uses there, it refers to, he's referring somewhat to the Old Testament law, but it's not the uppercase L that you would find usually depicting or referring to the Hebrew law. He's meaning law, like be good, do good, do the right things, uphold that law and the law. Don't be a criminal. So should we be Lawless people. Paul's saying, no, no, don't be lawless people. In fact, be righteous people. Live out the righteousness that you have now received from God. There's a a theologian named F.X. Steinleiter, and he says, nowhere do we see more clearly the difference between paganism and Christianity than in the conception of sin. And these words highlight an important point for in the ancient world, generally sin was not thought of as a very serious matter. Certainly not as serious as it was in the Christian understanding of things. We do not always realize how distinctive of Christianity was its attitude towards evil of every kind. It's that understanding that sin is the separator. That because of God's righteousness, because of the glory of God, he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. So there becomes this divide and this chasm between the two, right? And so he says, I want to dwell with you because I love you. I want to be with you, but we have to take care of this divide between us, this sin thing. And so Paul is bringing attention to the severity and the magnitude of our sin. And he says, that's why Jesus came. He didn't just bridge a gap. They remove it all together to bring connection. 
It wasn't just like, okay, now you can walk over, but it's like they, they just said, it's gone. It's not there. It no longer exists. And then you can dwell in the presence and the glory of God because you've now taken on his righteousness. That is why he continues to push rather emphatically that we uphold the law. The third thing this morning, Abraham's righteousness came through faith. Abraham's righteousness came through faith. So Romans 4, as we get into the fourth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 4. So he's going to shift his focus just a little bit, and he's still hitting on this idea uh, of that, that, that the Old Testament spoke to this justification by faith. Uh, he's saying, you know, the righteousness through faith. This is still, he's saying this is an Old Testament concept. And so we're going to read through some of that. He's showing and building his argument now for, for the Jews within the Roman church. And so in Romans 4, 1 through 3, it says, What then shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Again, another rhetorical question, because he was planning on answering it. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's work through this for a minute. Um, even if Abraham had been justified by works, even if this had been how he received his righteousness, he would not be able to boast before God. There's no way he would have been able to stand before the Lord and be like, look how great I am. The simple matter is the creation will never be equal to or greater than the creator. So as Abraham stands before the Lord, no matter how good he could have been, his righteousness would still fail in comparison to the righteousness of God. And that goes for every single one of us in this room. There's nothing so great that we could do that we could go to the Lord and be like, I am pretty awesome, God. You did good, right? There's, we have no footing for such statements. We have no grounds to go before the Lord and think, hey, I am pretty great. If you want, I can pull up a chair next to you, give you a few pointers on how to run the world and everybody's lives and you know, whatnot. The universe, We've got some ideas for creation. He would go, Poink. get back in your place. I'll love you from here now. Right? No, I'm just kidding. That's not how you did. But we don't have the footing. We, no matter how good we may think we are, the, the, first of all, we're unable to earn righteousness, right? We're, we just can't do it. Second of all, even if we had the ability to do so, we would not be able to boast before God. Second thing, real quick, is that Paul's response to this question is to look at Scripture. He says, so what, what did Abraham understand about all this? What did he, he says, well, what does the scripture say? Which let that be a great lesson for every single one of us in this room, that when we walk through moments and we have questions and we have, have moments where we're trying to understand what to do and what to, what to find out, where does the Lord want me to do it? What does the word of God say? Let that be our starting place always. And not as something to weigh against, but as something to say, this is the word of God. This is what the Lord says and following the word as the final word and saying, Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be led of you. I'm going to read your word for your wisdom. Because if you want to hear the voice of God, the best place to hear it, the best place to start hearing the voice of the Lord is to read the Bible. It's his word. And you go, oh, I heard from the Lord today. You go, oh, that's pretty profound. You go, wow, I read the Bible. So he says, let's look at the scripture. What does the scripture say? So Paul looks and he pulls from Genesis 15, verse six. And he says, you know, and his faith was, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So his believing in what the Lord said was then in turn given to him as righteousness. And so here's, here's what he says. This is uh, the actual passage from, from Genesis 15. This is one through six. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham or Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This is a moment of despair. He's down, he is upset, and then the word of the Lord came to him. If there is nothing 
else in this life that could ever encourage you. The word of the Lord came to him. And he says, this man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And he was like, try me. That's kind of what the Lord's saying. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So we're not talking about just a a small moment of belief, but you have to understand that, that he is old, very old at this time, past the age of having children. And the Lord is saying, understand, it's not going to be a servant in your household who will be your heir. He said, but you will have your own son. And beyond that, go try to count the stars if you can. If you can go count them. He said, that will be the number of descendants. He said, good luck. You're not going to keep up. The descendants are going to be innumerable. He would become the father of nations. But believing in that, and it says it was credited to him as Righteousness. So what's Paul's aim here? What is, he, what is he trying to accomplish? He's showing a new way of thinking because he's about to flip their whole idea and understanding of the law on its head. So starting in verse four, it says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he pulls from Psalms and he says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin is the Lord will never count against them. So he, again, he's contrasting the work grace conversation. He's saying, look, this is what work says. This is what grace says. And then he goes and he pulls in from the Old Testament and saying, listen, even the law and the prophets understood this fact. We just missed it because we were seen through the lens of the law the whole way through. He said, as the Jews, we, we have to understand that it is not through the works. It's not through the deeds. It's not through the doing, but it is only by grace. It's only by grace. So he's been talking about Abraham and, or Abraham, and then he comes back and he throws in David. So we've got Abraham, the father of the, the Israel nation, right? The, the, the father of the, of the whole uh, Hebrew nation that, that it all starts there and goes from there. And then David, the great king, who was a man after God's own heart, he sees, you know, he's bringing these examples of these incredible men that are pillars in their faith, pillars in their family, pillars in, in all that they believe and walk and, and, and try to live out. And he's saying, look, even read the words of David, look at what was said about Abraham. And both of these things are vital and important in understanding that our righteousness is, comes through grace, justification by faith. So he's saying this, he's saying, don't, if you feel that you're, you're, he's, he's not, hear me, let me say it this way. He's not saying that your works have no value. He's not saying, okay, forget how you live, go do whatever you want, just keep faith in Jesus. No, 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 no. But what he's saying is if the, your faith lies in your works, you're going to stand before the Lord empty handed and nothing to show. But if your faith is in the Lord, when you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, all of the sudden you have value in your hands and all of a sudden you have the righteousness of God. So when you stand before the Lord with your faith in him and you stand there, instead of saying, here's all of my good that I have ever done. And he goes, it adds up to not enough, I'm sorry. But if you stand before the Lord and you say, I place my faith and my trust in you and I live my life to bring joy to you. I live my life as an offering unto you. Here's what I have. And he goes, all I see is the righteousness of God. No matter what your deeds were, no matter what you've done, no matter your faults and your failures and your shortcomings, he says, no, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So if you try to stand and go before the Lord, like, look how great I am. He's like, it's not going to work. 
And so that's why David, when he writes in the Psalm, he says, he says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Because our sin is a debt that had to be paid. And that's why Jesus came to pay it. His blood on the cross paid our debt so that through our faith in him, our sins will never count against us. So verse nine through verse 12, it says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? And so we're back to this argument now, like is this only for the Jews or, or is it for the Gentiles also? He says, or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? And this is important, we have to understand this. He says, was it after he was circumcised or before? He said, not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of them circumcised who are not only circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul asked two questions. Again, this is what he does, right? He asks these rhetorical questions. The first one had to do with the condition of, of, of Abraham, and the second one was explicitly about circumcision. So then he answers them kind of in, in backwards order, and he's starting with, with circumcision. He said, when, when was he considered righteous? When was this given to him? When was he credited with it righteous? Was it before or was it after? He's like, hmm... He's like, oh, it wasn't after. I love how he says it. He's like, well, not after. What option does that leave us then? Before, right? And so it's this moment of like, understand people that this was, his righteousness was credited to him prior to even the moment of circumcision. In fact, when you look at the text, when you look at scripture, the, this moment of being credited, credited, credited with righteousness came in Genesis 15. It wasn't until Genesis chapter 17 that the Lord even came to him and said, hey, let's make a covenant and, and, and then let's go through with this process. It was even later still in the chapter before he went through with it, all while still having righteousness credited to him. So he's pointing to the fact that, that his righteousness came through his faith in the Lord, his trust in the Lord long before he ever had any physical covenant, covenant entered into with the Lord. So he's saying it's rooted back into his faith in the Lord. It was his faith. All of this is moving to the moment that he states that, that Abraham is the father then of all that are not circumcised as well as those who are. And the only way to be a part of that family is in faith. We say you, you, may, be, you may be circumcised and you may physically be a part of the Hebrew family, but Abraham is not your father unless you step into that same faith. Let's read Romans 4.16. It says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Is he backing up? Is he backtracking here and saying, if you have the law, you're, no, 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 no. He's saying, you understand, this is coming after the statement that he already made in 12. He's continuing this same thought that it's, it's those who are circumcised, but not just circumcised, but those who also follow in the footsteps of the faith. He's saying it's, it's, he's the father of all who believe. So if you have faith, he is your father. How many of you growing up in kids' church, you saying, Father Abraham? Mm, come on. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, in case you missed it the first time. I'm one of them. So are you. You know what? Let's just praise the Lord. With your right arm, though, only. I, I, for some reason, this became a motion of praise. 
Turn around, sit down. I don't know. Like, this is goodness. Of the anointing, I think. So we have to understand that all of this was designed to flow through grace. It was all designed to flow through grace. That, that our faith then allows us to be freely justified by grace. And that's why he again says, he says, that the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. And guaranteed all offspring. And who's the offspring? Those who believe. Those who believe. And it's guaranteed. Why? Because God promised Abraham that those who are his offspring, right, would be his chosen. So here we are now. We step into this new realm that it's through faith that we become the offspring of Abraham and that we flow into this grace of Jesus. Flows through the grace of Jesus. So let's pick up in Romans 23. I don't know, we skipped it, but this is where we need to get to. So Romans 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death. And hear this, this is, hear this verse. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's powerful. That's one of those, there's really nothing else to add there. Paul again, though, gives us an incredible instruction here when he says, those words were not just written for Abraham. They weren't just written down for him. But they were written for us as well to serve as a reminder, to help lead us in the direction of faith. He's saying, go back, read the Old Testament, read those scriptures and be reminded then that the word of the Lord carries forward and is applicable to our lives today. And that was a statement given even then to the church in the New Testament saying, don't neglect the, the word. Don't neglect the scriptures. Use those. Be reminded that it is through our faith. Let it build you up. Let it encourage you. Let it strengthen you. Let it allow you to walk in, in a new, profound understanding of the Lord. He said, because God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then again, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And I'll invite the worship team. Raised to life for our justification. Here's the greatest thing in the world. The thing we have to understand is that Jesus died on the cross for all sin. For those who have believed and those who have not, he has paid the price it has been done. He didn't just exclusively select this and that and here and there. No, he, he died for all, for all of mankind. So he died for our sins and then he rose again for our justification. But we just read that the way to receive the justification is through faith in Jesus Christ. The way to receive this, this blessed gift that David writes about, he says, blessed is the one whose sin will never count against him. The way to walk in this grace is a simple statement of faith, putting our trust in the Lord, putting our faith in him, and saying that Jesus died for me, he died for you. His blood was shed because it was needed. See, Jesus said, he said, I didn't come to, to do away with the law, he said, but I came to fulfill the law. What did he mean by that? There's so many things. But, but one thing in particular is this, that, that the law required, and we mentioned earlier, the law required a sacrifice for sin. In the Old Testament, it was a mess of an ordeal. I mean, it was a big, there was so much of a cleansing process for the priests that they had to go through to be made ceremonially clean before they could even bring the offering before the Lord. And, the, and then the offering had to be pure and spotless 
had to be the lamb that was pure and spotless. And after this whole cleansing process and everything being made right, then the lamb had to be sacrificed and his blood had to be shed so that that blood would go as an offering unto the Lord to cover the sins of the nation. So Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. So he says, I am the perfect and spotless lamb. Only me, nobody else. There's no other possible solution for the problem. So he went to the cross as the pure spotless lamb. He lived a sinless life. He was born sinless through the immaculate conception. He, he, he is the pure and spotless lamb. Nobody else, no other person, no other being, no other thing on the planet can replicate or, 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 or replace Jesus. So Jesus comes and he gives his life on the cross and his blood is poured out so that we might have atonement which gives way to propitiation and justification. And that's where it begins, is then aligning our faith and our belief in Jesus and just saying, Lord, so, the Bible, so Romans will tell us later, he says, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's, that's a great statement. And it's the easiest way to understand it. Like, that's what it takes. That's it. There's not like, you, have, you don't have to make a deposit. There's nothing, you, there's no money. There's nothing of that. There's no exchange of anything other than simply saying, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. And I'm a sinner. I recognize it. And then saying, but I confess that you're Lord. And he goes, done, transaction, done. Put your faith in me, done. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.